Shaky Town as a book is beautiful in the way that it puts its characters in these very organic but difficult situations and allows their lives and consequences to play out in a really natural way. My guest today is Eric Nussbaum, who is the author of Stealing Home. He writes about sports. He writes about all kinds of different stuff. So this is a Book Society second, where we have the author of a book that was chosen by a guest who does not know the author. And then I called the author and now he's on the show as well. You're the second author to appear. Thank you very much. The first was Angus Fletcher. Both you and Angus picked books that I would not have expected. So Eric Nussbaum picked a book called Shaky Town by Lou Matthews, which is amazing. And it's really the reason I started this podcast, because I loved this book. There is no way in a thousand years of reading that I ever would have discovered it on my own. I absolutely loved it. Eric, welcome. Why did you pick this book? Thank you for having me. I picked this book in part because I love it. It's a great book. And in part because Lou is one of my dear friends and writing mentors. I wanted to talk about it. I think it's a great book and it's the kind of book that people need to hear about. I totally agree. I think it's a really fantastic book. How do you know Lou? So when I moved back to LA in 2014 from Mexico City, I was working at Vice Media, working as a sports editor. And I kind of felt like I wanted some more creativity in my writing life. Like I was from LA, I'd grown up there, but I didn't really have a writing community in LA. So I signed up for a UCLA extension class in fiction and Lou was a professor. He was the teacher of the class. He ended up being exactly what I needed. And it turned out that I was not the first person to have that experience signing up for one of Lou's classes. Learned a ton from him at UCLA and then moved over to this home writing group he runs out of his house in Beachwood Canyon. He became part of my family, or I guess I became part of him and his wife, Allison's more accurately. Wow. So you have a personal connection to this book. So he's kind of a UCLA Extension legend. I actually used to teach at UCLA Extension. He won an Instructor of the Year Award when I was there. And so I had actually heard about him, but I had not heard about this book. So one of the things I loved about this book is it's my favorite kind of novel. I don't know many novels that are written like this. Tom Rackman's The Imperfectionist comes to mind. And I guess Elizabeth Strout's Olive Kittredge is sort of in the same vein, but it's a series of independent short stories but they all tie together and they all tell a story. What did you think of that device? Why do you think that was what he chose? I love that device. If you can pull it off, it's very hard to do. It's very hard to keep people's attention and sort of maintain a through line through interconnected stories that still feel like of a single piece. I think about like Winesburg, Ohio or something like that. It's been done for a long time, but it hasn't been done well that many times. I think that the form of the stories and the book and the subject are kind of deeply interconnected, right? You sort of arrive at the best form for your story. If the form determines the content and the content determines the form, there's this really like interconnected relationship. As a writer, at least for me, I make decisions by necessity almost. And for this book, I think it's a book about place and about a community. And to give this panoramic look where you're diving in and out of people's lives and getting a sense of the interconnectedness of those lives, short stories, it works. Yeah, there is some overlap between the characters and the locations in this book and the characters and the locations in your book, Stealing Home. Did you talk to Lou about that at all? Is that something that he helped you with? We didn't really talk about it that much. There is, in this book, a Dodger Stadium story. And that's certainly something we talked about, obviously, because Stealing Home is all about that. But in terms of 
the interconnectedness of it, we kind of let it alone. I helped him out with a couple of factual questions in terms of like dates and times and things like that, but I can't claim any more credit than that. He sent me years ago an earlier draft of the story of Curse on Chavez Ravine that's in Shaky Town, but it's fiction and I had to like read it and enjoy it and then put it out of my head because I knew that I was writing a nonfiction book and I didn't want to get all mixed up. This is a book about LA. One of the things that I loved about this book, and we talked about the device already, is I think it's the perfect way to tell a story about Los Angeles, because you're from here, born Angelino, one of the rare breed of born Angelinos. What part of the city are you from? Yeah, I'm from Culver City. So you're from Culver City. I live in Chatsworth, which is another planet. It's a million miles away. Yeah. <laughs> we technically have the same mayor, but generations could live in Culver City and Chatsworth and never meet. I think I went to Chatsworth to play high school baseball once, and that was the only time. So Mike Moustakis is like the pride of Chatsworth, as you know. There's a mural of him on Chatsworth High School. Culver High, we didn't really have like great major league alumni, but you go to like El Segundo and they would have George Brett Field, these legacies of major league players and their little small pockets of LA had so much pride in them still all those years later, but we didn't have one in Culver City. We'll get there. I'm trying to like stop the Dodger talk for as long as possible, but like eventually we're going to get into it. This will come out after the World Series is over, but... Currently, we are in the middle of the NLCS, and so I'm sure we'll have opinions on that. And it'll be great because we can make predictions and see if we're right. My prediction is Dodgers are going to take the NLCS. I think they're going to beat the Astros in five. Did any of these characters ring more true to you than others in Shaky Town? I don't think more true or less true. There's certain stories that I'm more drawn to. I think that the title story, Shaky Town, about the priest is probably my favorite. It's really cinematic and powerful, and I remember reading it. It used to have a different title, The Irish Six That it was called, before it was even in this book, and loving that story. Crazy Life is really powerful, and Lou calls it his greatest hit. It's a much anthologized story, and I think the narrator's voice in that story is pretty incredible, too. Yeah, that one is really powerful. I mean, he writes so well about teenagers, and he writes so well about adults. He just really inhabits all these characters in such a beautiful way. The story about the priest, Irish Sextet, is such a great title. I'm sad that he abandoned it. Yeah, I'm not sure. I honestly never asked him why. I mean, Shaky Town's a great title, too, and it's the title of the book. Titles are hard. I've never been good at them, and I've never really like felt fit to criticize a title or praise a title in particular, because I didn't even come up with a title for my book. My editor did. Very, like, impossible. A story about a baseball team that moves in the middle of the night to another city. Stealing Home is the brilliant title for that. Yeah, it worked out great. There's a lot of stuff in this book about cancers, different types of cancers. Like there's a character whose mother is literally dying of cancer. We talked about Chewy, the story about the girl whose boyfriend is caught up in a drive-by shooting, and his name is Chewy, and he dies this slow death, but is ultimately mutilated, but sort of is allowed to kill himself first. Where this theme really hit home for me was in the Irish priest story, where it's about the abuse of young boys, it not only destroys the life of these boys, but it also destroys this priest who uncovers its life. There's a lot of stories in here of someone just slowly wasting away and slowly doing it to themselves. Did that theme stick out to you? It's interesting to put it that way. I think of it as people struggling against forces beyond their control in a lot of the book and trying to make the best of difficult circumstances and impossible circumstances in a lot of cases. You know, you have the, the shopkeeper, you have the neighbors who have found themselves at the end of their lives and hating each other, but they're kind of all each other have. You have this priest who's drinking himself into oblivion. 
it's just a lot of like people getting by and I didn't see it as wasting away. I saw it as more like struggling to survive and being in a world where you're faced with impossible choices and having to make them. One of the things that I struggled with as a writer, I still struggle with it, but I really struggled with it before I took Lou's first class was putting pressure on characters and understanding that good stories come from things happening to people. Lou loves Flannery O'Connor and he would always talk about her and we'd read her essays and we'd read her fiction. And she would talk about character as destiny and people's personalities influencing the choices they make and the inevitability of certain things happening in stories based on those choices. Shaky Town as a book is beautiful in the way that it puts its characters in these very organic but difficult situations and allows their lives and consequences to play out in a really natural way. It's hard to write well and truthfully and also in a way where it's compelling to a reader and there's tension and things are happening. I think a lot of fiction, especially short stories, suffer from nothing happening. Stuff happens in this book. Yeah, constantly. Nothing felt like writing to me. It just flowed naturally and nothing felt like a device that the author had employed to get from point A to point B. Everything made sense and moved in a way that seemed totally logical, even when it took very strange turns that you didn't expect. That's the product of decades of revision also, right? This book has been in the works for like 30 years before he finally published it. Blue's a perfectionist and also has had a lot of bad publishing luck. So between the two, these stories have been worked and worked and worked. They are finely tuned machines. And he's a mechanic, so he would appreciate that analogy. If this book was written about New York, it would have been published. He's suffered from that. He had one other novel that he published called L.A. Breakdown, which is a great book. It's published in the late 90s. It's about street racing in L.A. in the 60s. He just couldn't get that publishing deal that he needed or didn't want to make a compromise that a certain editor or agent wanted him to make. Finally, this book was published in part because of one of his former students, Jim Gavin, who went on to create a TV show called Lodge 49 and decided that the book should be published. So he created a press and partnered with a local press in LA called Prospect Park Books and made it happen. So it's really like a corrective to decades of negligence on the part of the New York publishing establishment. So you had to deal with that establishment for stealing home, presumably. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I love my New York based agent. Yeah, I'm in the process of a nonfiction book at the moment. And I also love all my lovely New York publishing people. But I can see why they would shy away from a book like this. Yeah, it's harder. You have to convince people. I definitely found with stealing home that it took me years to figure out how to tell the story and establish enough credibility that I could tell it and convince people that this LA based story actually has universal appeal. It's sort of an unfortunate East Coast bias thing that happens and it happens in the media, it happens in publishing. It's sort of the way that the world is, I think. I didn't realize how centered in New York publishing was until I moved somewhere else. The episode where we talked about your book, the guest was Robert Peterson, who has this great podcast called The Hidden History of LA, which is stories about the history of Los Angeles. And I remember listening to that podcast when I first moved here and thinking, oh, wow, I'm in a new place that has its own history, which is an obvious thought to have. But as a New Yorker, that vision, have you seen that New Yorker cover of the world is seen from New York and the first two thirds of it are 11th Avenue and then the Hudson River and then the rest of it is the rest of the world? Yeah, yes, exactly right. <laughs> yeah, that's really true. And it really does feel like the center of the universe when you're there. 
it's funny because LA is always thought of as a one industry town. And one of the things I love about this book is that there's very little industry in it. In one story, there's a set carpenter. Lou has some really interesting things to say about actors. The best one being that actors are wonderful people when they're working, which is something any actor will tell you. And anyone who's been in the business, including myself, understands that show business is much better when you're working. But this book really isn't about the industry. It's about all these other things that happen in Los Angeles and all of these other stories and lives that play out in LA that are just like anywhere. It's just, it has this specific LA flavor. I don't know. It's such a good book. I can't imagine anyone not wanting to publish it upon reading it. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same way. That's why people should go buy it and read it and tell their friends. I think it's also important what you're talking about in the sense that it's just like a book that captures LA as a real place where real people live. And I know for me growing up in LA, I grew up a mile from Sony Studios. It used to be MGM and it was not a part of my life, really. It was there, but my parents didn't work in the entertainment industry. Nobody I really knew worked in the entertainment industry. It's just another place where people go to work. But if you're just a regular person in LA, for the most part, it's probably only impacting you in the sense that you're going to see a bunch of like annoying billboards for Emmy nominees once a year. As far as places to live, I mean, it's just a fantastic place to live. It's beautiful. The weather is great. The people are nice. My joke with my New York friends is that it's not that LA people are fake nice. It's that we're just happy. <laughs> we see the sun. I think that's really true. It's like a really pleasant place to be. I don't live there anymore. And I love where I live now. I live in Tacoma, Washington. but. I miss the weather. This is a great place to live too, but there's something about LA that's pretty hard to beat. I found on this podcast, even though I don't give anybody guidance, I've always found it harder to talk about fiction than nonfiction. Fiction's harder because you're making these value judgments about art. It's like a different kind of thing. I'll tell you one part of this book, and maybe you can defend your former teacher, but I'll tell you one part of this book that I found Probably the only part that like made me kind of laugh out loud with like, all right, this is a little ridiculous, is in the garlic eater story where he's describing Mr. Kim's gun and he describes it sitting on a green felt table with a single spotlight shining on it. I was just like, this is the most noir image you can imagine. And I can't imagine a place where that actual scene would possibly exist. It felt to me like a nod to L.A. noir. It might have been. I know that Lou likes those books and has read a lot of those Chandler books and stuff. I love that story. And I love the feeling he describes of Mr. Kim walking around with a gun. Yeah, it really spoke to me. Mr. Kim has that thing where he gets his courage just from holding it, where if he pulled it out, he'd be likely to drop it and probably hurt himself. But he felt stronger with it. Let's talk about the story with the Dodger curse about Lupe and the curse on the Dodgers, which I find fantastic. Do you think that there's really a curse on Latino players playing for the Dodgers? No, <laughs> no, there's not really a curse. I think the Dodgers have bad karma from what happened there and the city of LA does, but I'm not really a believer in curses. I mean, you could think of a thousand counterexamples of fantastic Latino Dodger players. Fernando Valenzuela comes to mind, but Kike Hernandez was, I would say an above average player for us. And he's now a superstar in Boston. I mean, you can do better than that. You could go Pedro Martinez. If you want to talk about a player who the Dodgers traded and turned into maybe the greatest pitcher of all time. But I don't think that was because of the fact that families were evicted to build the stadium. I think it was because the front office made a bad choice, to be quite honest about it. I feel very passionately about what happened with Dodger Stadium, obviously, and I wrote a whole book about it. But I think what's good about the story in Shaky Town is that it's a story and that it's really all about those people, Lupe, Emiliano, 
and their lives. And it's not really like trying to kind of will itself to being true. It's true in the context of shaky town. I read it right before I went to a game and I just thought about it. I was telling one of my friends about it. Everyone should get shaky town and read about it. It's just a great curse. It's a great thing to think about when you're in Dodger stadium. The image that he paints of the stadium buckling under an earthquake and the seats rolling and falling down and all of it is fantastic also. And I love a good LA book that ends with the destruction of LA. I think it's a classic time honored tradition and it's really hard to pull off in new and original ways going back to like Nathaniel West or even further. But I think that this book does it extremely well. Let's talk about Stealing Home, which was one of my favorite books that we read on this podcast. I love the way that you did it. Two things in the world that I love are history and the Dodgers. So this was really the perfect book for me. Yeah, you were right in my target wheelhouse audience there. Yeah. My grandmother used to tell me stories of going to Dodger Stadium and seeing Pee Wee Reese play. And family lore is that Pee Wee Reese actually asked her out on a date, but she said no. That's good family lore. Yeah, I was really upset about this as a kid because I was like, you mean Pee Wee Reese could have been my grandpa? I didn't quite get. That's not how it would have worked. That would have been a different kind of podcast. I'd probably be a pro ball player. I'd be like Mike Yastrzemski. I'd be the grandson of a legend. You'd be on the Giants though, which is not great. I reject the implication that I couldn't cut it as a Dodger. <laughs> I think Mike Yastrzemski could probably cut it as a Dodger too. I think just about anyone on the Giants could cut it as a Dodger. Even the ones who didn't cut it as a Dodger, I think now could. <laughs> It's okay to dive into a little bit of baseball talk. This has been an extremely exciting baseball season for the Dodgers for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is it's a repeat season and probably the most of which is it's the best Dodgers squad I've ever seen and maybe the best team I've ever seen. The 2018 Red Sox come to mind. Yeah, I mean, I think they were great. They're kind of falling apart right now physically. The Dodgers without Clayton Kershaw, Justin Turner now, Max Muncy are not as good. Joe Kelly now. It's impressive that they're here, considering all the injuries that they're dealing with. But that all said, they're amazing. I mean, they've been amazing for a few years now. The fact that they won 106 games with Cody Bellinger batting 160 is kind of like mind-boggling. Of course, now he's the reason that they're even still in the playoffs. It's been a crazy year. I feel like my relationship with it changed a little bit after they won last year, and I gained a little bit of sanity and perspective in my fandom not living and dying with each pitch in the same way. There was definitely a lot of emotional energy in my life spent on the Dodgers between writing the book and then having the book come out and then win the World Series in the same year also. I think I exhausted my Dodger reserves a tiny bit. I also got really mad that they signed Trevor Bauer and I, I'm still kind of mad about it. I think that the fact that they were able to make a blunder like that, let Kike Hernandez and Jock Peterson walk away, threw their money at a guy who was toxic and then go ahead and trade for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner to make up for it is like crazy. I mean, like they have so much power and money and resources as an organization. It's something else. For those of you who aren't deep dive baseball fans, Trevor Bauer is an incredible pitcher who is an extremely troublesome person for ways that we won't get into in this podcast. But a lot of Dodger fans were sad when they signed him because he really is kind of a terrible guy and he's a great pitcher. So I didn't know any of this when they signed him. I didn't know anything about him. I just saw him pitch that first game against the Giants, and I thought, this guy's all right with me. But he has not played 80% of the season because he got arrested. Anyway, we're not going to get into it. But he's not a great guy, and we let go some great players to have him. I love baseball so much because it's these proxy battles between cities. It's kind of amazing, and it's amazing to be a fan of a team. But 
to realize, like, as we were saying, you know, our biggest nemesis in this series is Jock Peterson. And he was a Dodger last year. <laughs> He's just in a different shirt now. So everybody hates him. Yeah, it's the whole Jerry Seinfeld thing. You're rooting for laundry. You're rooting for laundry. Yeah. As a Dodger fan, what were the things in your research for Stealing Home that surprised you? One of the things that surprised me as I was researching Stealing Home as a Dodger fan was how savvy and deeply involved Walter O'Malley, the owner of the team who brought them from Brooklyn, was in the day-to-day operations of the franchise. He's painted as this villainous cigar-smoking bigwig who stole the team from Brooklyn and brought them to LA where they displaced communities. That's a vast oversimplification, in my opinion. The guy was a visionary. He was perhaps very insensitive to the plight of communities that were displaced to make way for his stadium. But most of that happened before the Dodgers chose to come and sort of set the table for him to come. But the way he thought about baseball as entertainment, as a spectator sport, as a live experience, as a televised experience was so far beyond what anybody else was thinking about in the 1950s. His conception of baseball is what baseball is today. It's easy to overlook that because we're just living in his reality. That's not what baseball was when he built Dodger Stadium. No, even the simple thing like having families at games was not really a thing owners were thinking about. They didn't care. Baseball was for men, pretty much white men to go to, at least Major League Baseball. O'Malley conceived of it as a family sport. He very conscientiously wanted to bring diversity to Dodger Stadium in terms of accepting people's money. And he was pretty happy to accept everybody's money if he could. He tried to instill basically cable TV for sports in the 50s and 60s, way before that actually happened. He really thought of it as family entertainment and entertainment that went beyond the ball field. All these things that now we have baseball stadiums with these different features and attractions in them. You see Dodger Stadium now and it's really old, the third oldest ballpark, and it doesn't have a lot of that stuff compared to newer stadiums. But when it first opened, I mean, it was way ahead of its time and state of the art. His vision for having a privately owned baseball only stadium at a time when everybody else was building these public utility stadiums that would work for baseball and football. Those are all gone. Dodger Stadium is still there for a reason. He saw the future and then he willed it into existence. Yeah, it's amazing to go to Dodger Stadium and realize that it was the first stadium like that. And what we think of as a stadium, which is a place you can go to and see a game, but also get food. Also, there's places to hang out. There's things to do. There's retail stores. There's luxury boxes. He really invented all that. Fenway doesn't have any of that. Fenway has those things kind of wedged into the existing architecture, but it was not designed to do anything other than serve hot dogs and play baseball. Yeah, I mean, it's the simple concept of walking into a stadium with a concourse and seeing the game as you walk to your seat instead of going through a tunnel. That was a pretty new concept. So can you give us some random facts about Dodger Stadium? The best ones are the ones that didn't happen. O'Malley wanted to put a monorail around the stadium in a parking lot and really like came close to doing it. He sent his front office staff to Disneyland to learn about customer service. And he was very inspired by Walt Disney and the experience he wanted to create. Another good random fact is that when Dodger Stadium first opened, they forgot to put water fountains in it. People accused the team of being cheap and making people pay for water, but it was actually just a pretty bad oversight. So you've been to Dodger Stadium, obviously, many times. You've probably been in the bowels of Dodger Stadium, I would imagine, as a sports writer and a writer of this book. Where's your favorite place to watch a game in Dodger Stadium? There's no bad place. I like everywhere in Dodger Stadium. Probably for the view, probably loge level behind home plate. It's probably my favorite. I like the reserve level. I like the top deck. I like the bleachers, the pavilions. I've never sat in those right behind home plate seats where you see like Mary Hart and stuff like that during the games, but 
those seem pretty fun too. There's really not a bad seat there. Yeah, there's not a bad seat in the house. Everyone should go to Dodger Stadium. Everyone should be a Dodger fan. Everyone should buy Stealing Home and everyone should go to Dodger Stadium. <laughs> Two more questions. Favorite Dodger of all time. And you know what? We'll say that Jackie Robinson is retired because he's a legend. I'm going to go with number 43, actually. Raul Mondesi. Raul Mondesi, as a child, was my favorite Dodger. I was a big fan of Eric Karras, too. But Mondesi, he was my guy. And just exciting, fun to watch. Threw me a ball once when I was at a game as a kid. Yeah, we're going with Mondesi. Favorite current Dodger? Oh, that's a really hard one. It kind of changes day to day. There's a lot of Dodger players I really like on the team right now. I love Mookie Betts. I love watching Corey Seager swing the bat. Right now, I'll say Chris Taylor because he had three home runs last night. <laughs> CT3. So last night we were watching the game and I sat down and I said, hey, it's CT3. He's playing third base. That's position number three. He's going to hit three home runs tonight. Nobody's going to believe me. I said it to my wife. She was sitting right there. And then he indeed hit three home runs. I'm not sure I believe you. You're a sports writer. What other sports do you write about? I write about everything sports writing wise. My project right now is I have a weekly newsletter I do it with my friend Adam Billison, who's an illustrator. He did the illustrations in Stealing Home. So it's called Sports Stories. And we do a offbeat sports history story every week. I write them and he illustrates them. I'm a subscriber. I enjoy them. So where can people subscribe to that? Uh, sportsstories.substack.com. Final question. I always ask people to recommend two books to our audience. I'll recommend a couple of LA books. One is called Atomic Aztecs by Seshu Foster. That's A-T-O-M-I-K, Atomic and Aztecs, A-Z-T-E-X. And it's a pretty wild book that's half contemporary LA set at the Farmer John meatpacking plant where they make Dodger dogs, or at least used to make Dodger dogs until this year, and half uh, about an Aztec god. It's an unsung classic of LA literature. I'll recommend another book by a Lou Matthews student named Dana Johnson. And I would say that she's more than a student because she's like a great LA writer and a professor at USC. And it's a novel called Elsewhere, California that I'm a huge fan of. So Elsewhere, California by Dana Johnson and Atomic Aztecs by Seshu Foster. Two good LA books. Thank you very much, Eric. We look forward to your next book and we look forward to your newsletter. And thank you for joining us and recommending this awesome book. Thank you for having me on. Next week, we're going to be talking about Of Plymouth Plantation by William Bradford with Dr. Peter Mancall. It's a narrative of the pilgrims settling in the United States. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. Who has a green felt table that is empty of anything and is going to like put a revolver on it? I don't know. Somebody in a Ross McDonald story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.